Good morning. Let's go over a few announcements. You just behave yourself, young Mr. McLeod. It'll be cold for you this year. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. 1 Timothy 5, verse 5. Tonight we continue our study in the Gospel of John, 6 p.m., Spring Finger Foods. And this Spring Finger Foods thing is just kind of a, a thing because it's developed into a, a whole lot more over the years. So it's, it's an enjoyable time. Uh, a lot gets imparted out to, to, to the group. I think it's a real blessing to attend. So we look to have you out here tonight. No choir tonight. So we'll meet at 6 p.m. and uh, we'll resume choir later on. Men's Bible study, Tuesday at 10 a.m. at McLeod Home. Uh, no prayer meeting this Wednesday evening uh, due to the Thanksgiving holiday coming up. So enjoy that time. Uh, great news. Mission pledges have exceeded $11,000. So that's, that's something to really be grateful for. Mission committee meeting coming up a week from this Wednesday at 6.15 p.m. Acts and Facts, Free Grace Broadcaster. Uh, booklets are on the table in the foyer. Uh, you, all you, are invited to the 80th birthday party for Carol Atwood, Saturday, December 16th. Metamora Masonic Lodge in Metamora from 12 to 2 p.m. Please RSVP by the first. Tanya Drew, which is Carol's daughter. Uh, you have her number there. Cards are welcome. Do not bring any gifts. Please check the shelf above the coat rack for any items that may be yours. Also for children, please take your mission posters home today. I have a little information on the pastor's Christmas dinner. It's the sign-up board out there in the foyer. Uh, it is December 1st. You know the time? 6 o'clock. It's at Swartz Creek Church. Okay, 6 o'clock. And again, uh, just to go over Carol's uh, dinner, is December the 16th. Our scripture for meditation is Psalm 22, and be page 860 in your pew Bible.
Would you stand with us, please, as we begin our service with open prayer? Adam, would you please lead us? Sure. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you for all the blessings you've given us throughout the week. We pray that you bless us this day, our, our fellowship. We pray that you give the pastor words that will reach into our heart. We pray that the Holy Spirit is with us during this time together. We thank you for all the blessings you have given us, all the mercies um, the supplying unto our, our needs and the fellowship that we have in church. Amen. Please remain standing for our first hymn. Good morning. Take your red Trinity hymnal and turn to number 396. 396 in the red hymnal.
your favorite hymn. If you have one pick for this morning, I have a hand. If I don't see another one, because it's my kid, and I will wait another second. <laughs> no, okay, Naomi. What number is it? Like? It is six two nine. Six two nine in the brown. Red. In the red. Six two nine in the red. And why did you pick this one this morning? Um, because he is a friend in Jesus, and he promised us something that no one could ever do. And when he does something that loves and does this kind of thing, it's definitely a friend. Awesome. All right. Thank you. All right. Six two nine in the red.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verse 1 through 10, 1849, in your pew Bible. Please stand with us as we bring forth the scripture. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing to the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. <clears throat> Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Take your brown hymnal this time and turn to number 378, 378 in the brown.
Our scripture text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 5. In our last study of believers under trial, we looked at hurting fathers. And we did so through a number of portals that King Solomon allowed us to peek as a result of his investive inquiries. We discovered that Solomon was well equipped in both wisdom and money to thoroughly investigate the various disciplines of life that affect us all. The book of Ecclesiastes just gives us his conclusions, not all of the investigative jargon of a formal report, but isn't it the conclusions that are most meaningful to us as we're trying to ascertain what life is all about? We look at hurting fathers. And Solomon brought out that it's tough being the breadwinner of the family. The hard work of earning money and saving for the future is meaningless. If circumstances beyond your control, what about death or loss of employment or stock market crash and so on, cause you to lose your savings or leave them to some fool, which Solomon brings out, coming after you who is reckless and irresponsible. The solution was to work to please and trust God and not to amass a fortune for yourself or your family. Trust God to take care of you, and he will. We also looked at the hurt that because our families live in dangerous situations, we are, as the fathers, called to be the protectors of our families. The solution we learned was to realize that ultimately it is God who protects his people, In answer to Jesus' prayer, you'll find it in John 17. Yes, we can take reasonable precautions, but we're not to become paranoid with regard to the hostility that's found in our culture. Then lastly, we looked at the hurt caused by our own children's poor spiritual decisions. Sometimes our kids, our grandkids, deny God. And yes, that's a hurt to us. The solution we saw is is, as much exposure as possible to gospel preaching. It's needed for the salvation and for sanctification of our souls. Yes, people can read a track or read their Bible, so forth, but generally the unbelieving don't do that. And it's through the foolishness of preaching, Paul says, that God has determined to save some. Is it cold in here? Chilly? If it is, we'll shut the fans off. Well, today I want to look at the subject of the pain of loneliness, the pain of loneliness. And as we do, let's ask for the Lord's presence. Our Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for the fact that we can come to you to study it. Thank you for the truth of it. It's very comforting to see, Lord, that in the scriptures you address all the ills or possible ills that we as human beings will face in a cursed world. And so when we even come to the subject of loneliness, it's not like you're silent. No, you have spoken with regard to all of these things. 
And it's the duty of the church, it's the duty of God's people to imbibe these things for ourselves, to apply them where we can, and to trust the Holy Spirit to make these things meaningful and operative in our lives. We do pray that prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. What about the pain of being all alone? Our text this morning, taken from 1 Timothy 5, instructs Timothy, Paul's associate and fellow servant in the gospel, concerning the church's obligation to care for widows. The church is not the government, so it has to set some rules for whom the church is to provide and who not. He says, verse 3, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in Knee. Okay, fair enough, but how are we to determine those widows who are really in need? Look at verse 4. If a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family, and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Look at verse 16. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Now you can see immediately that Paul is referencing family members who are Christians. That is to say, our faith in God dictates, among other things, reading from 1 John 3, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or his sister in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. What is Paul's point here? It is this, that the first line of help from God's viewpoint Is the Christian children and grandchildren helping to meet the needs of a widowed mother or grandmother or widowers like men and thereby not burdening the church with these financial outlays that should be resolved within the family? I can tell you that working as an advocate for seniors on a number of committees in Michigan, We petition representatives of the legislation against elder abuse. And the result was that our governor signed into law eight of the elder abuse legislation bills that senior coalitions and other senior advocacy groups have been working on since 2007. Now you might ask, why would the state of Michigan need elder abuse laws because, and this might be a shocker to you, because more than 50% of abuse for our seniors age 65 and older comes from their own children and grandchildren. The legislation that has now become Michigan law deals with all kinds of abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, And, as I have indicated, additional 
four other laws that deal with financial abuse of seniors in which the children or the grandchildren who have power of attorney or have their names jointly on mom and dad's or grandparents' bank accounts, they go in and empty the account for their own personal use out of sheer greed. Well, you can see what the result would be. Their parents, their grandparents, are left destitute and unable to support themselves in their old age. This is our world. This is the United States. And yes, this is the state of Michigan. But it must not be the state of the Christian church. The first line of help for the Christian elderly is the family. Listen to Paul's strong conclusion. He says in verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I want you to contemplate that a little bit. How <laughs> would denying the faith and behaving worse than an unbeliever, how would that play out eternally? It's a rather foreboding thought. Who then should the church help? Verse 5, the widow who is really in need, and get the next phrase, left all alone. Put her, puts her hope in God and continues night and day, to pray and to ask God for help. That's who we're to help. And right in the middle of that injunction is the phrase, left all alone. Meaning, she has no children. She has no grandchildren to care for her. Or, <laughs> or because her children or grandchildren are unbelievers and refuse to care for her, she must fend for herself. I want you to observe, brethren, that long before the government came to the aid of destitute people, the Church of Jesus Christ, in obedience to their Lord and following in his footsteps, has been providing aid to the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the indigent for centuries. Centuries. No one is more needy than a childless widow with no savings account, no pension from her deceased husband, could have been lost in the volatility of the stock market, no social security from the government because she wasn't a worker herself. We have an example of one such in Anna, of which the scripture says, there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Now that's pretty short marriage, isn't it? Seven years. And then, I'm reading scripture, she had lived with her husband seven years after her, her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 36 and 37. Now let me tell you, a short seven-year marriage is hardly 
enough time for a husband of meager salary to save enough money to support a widowed wife. Anna obviously had no children. And for these reasons, she lived in the temple quarters and she was supported by the temple treasury. Anna was a widow left all alone in accord with Paul's criteria for support. She busied herself with spiritual exercises. And Luke, the author of the book of Acts, commended her, saying she never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Verse 37 of Luke chapter 2. Being all alone is one of the breeding grounds for loneliness. It sounds so simple as to be stupid. But I can tell you that in our country, in the senior center complexes, there are dozens and dozens of lonely seniors whose loneliness is directly related to their isolation, and they don't have a clue. One of the good things federal dollars do, at least in my opinion, is what is called Meals on Wheels. You have to qualify. You have to be uh, unable to cook for yourself or unable to grocery shop or unable to have someone in your family come and cook for you or bring you meals. But if you do qualify, then meals are prepared and they're delivered to your dwelling at a minimal or no cost. Well, of course, it costs something. Your taxes pay for that. But it's based on your ability to pay. And then these meals are delivered in two ways. If you live alone in your own house or your own apartment, the meal is brought to your door. But if you live in an apartment complex, the meal is delivered to a large dining hall in that complex or to your apartment door. Riverview Towers in Lapeer is one such senior living place. Now, if you choose the dining hall, there you will find dozens and dozens of other seniors sitting around tables, chatting together, eating their meals together. We call those congregate meals, obviously. If you choose your apartment, You'll be eating all alone with nothing more than the TV as your company. Guess what the majority of seniors choose? Anyone have any ideas? They choose their apartments all alone. And then they complain or they wonder why they are lonely. Now there's reasons why they choose their apartment. They're scared. Uh, they don't like strangers. They value their privacy. You know, you don't have to take a shower and get all dolled up to eat in your apartment on a TV tray. There's lots of reasons why they choose that. Yes, they're left all alone. There's no spouse, no children, no grandchildren to chat with, but they have aggravated their plight by refusing social interaction with their peers who are really in the same boat as they are. I understand this. I understand shyness. 
I do, because I'm in that category myself. But for my own mental well-being, for my own spiritual growth, I force myself, yes, into social situations where I am compelled by the very nature of the event to interact with people in conversation, in listening to others tell their stories, in laughing, in crying if necessary, all with the goal of sharing the gospel if I'm working with unbelievers, or just get spiritual help myself and fellowship with other believers. To the lonely here this morning, whose loneliness is due to isolation, you who have been left all alone, the church is your safe haven. The fellowship of God's people is in our times of worship, but also in our times of just sitting around a meal in Fellowship Hall. Or there's a group of us that, that go to the local diner after church and just sit around a round table and chat. And it's very inexpensive. We eat eggs and bacon. That's, that's our dinner. The church can be a real source of fellowship. I've even had people tell me, you know, the church is more of a home to me than my own family. Whoa, they would say that? Yeah, they would say that. And they say that usually because the family has no time for God. No time for spiritual things. They're uncomfortable about being around Christians. Allah, me showing up for dinner. All they want to do is sit around and drink beer and tell dirty jokes and curse and whine and complain about life and politics. None of which is healthy for godly people. Not healthy for them either. But they don't know any better. I think the early church pattern is still viable today. Here it is. Acts 2 verse 42. They, the brethren, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Paul warned, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 and following. And the Apostle John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 1 John 1, verse 7. Again, I say, the church is the safe haven for loneliness due to isolation. Our text for people that are left all alone. All alone. Well, what about the lonely in heart? You can be with a group of people and still be 
lonely in heart. Some think, I, in order to, do, to, to combat loneliness, a person must be willing to socialize. That's the way they think. You need to go out to dinner with friends. I've already re- referenced that. Or go see a movie. Or do something. That's what they actually say to us. You need to get out and do more. Do things, not stay around that stuffy old house of yours. But this is not necessarily the solution for loneliness. People can be surrounded by friends. And odd as it sounds, they can still be lonely. While they're surrounded by friends. What kind of loneliness is that? Well, that's the loneliness of heart. And it's due to no one with whom to share your life. This isn't good. Though it can be spiritually profitable, as I'll note in a few minutes. Remember Adam? Adam kept very busy in Eden. Pruning trees, naming animals, enjoying a sinless environment without mosquitoes and gnats and other kinds of pests. But even within this pristine environment, God himself made this astute observation. Now let me read it. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. Genesis 2, verse 19 and 20. The Hebrew word here for suitable means a compatible aid or partner. No compatible aid was found for Adam. Now again, Adam was not totally isolated from living creatures. Many people live quite happily with just themselves and their pets. Now that Donna's gone, I've got my Siamese cat who wouldn't have anything, (laughs) he would not have anything to do with me so long as Donna was alive, but every night now he comes up and curls on my lap while I'm watching TV or reading a book or whatever, and he settles down. That said, nonetheless, God not only observed Adam to be without a suitable partner, but he gave this evaluation. The Lord said, here it is, it is not good for the man for he to be left alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Genesis 2, verse 18. (laughs) Obviously, God did not see the uh, animal kingdom as a viable substitute for a wife. Animals and all, God concluded that Adam was alone. That's God's word. Alone. What was this? This was loneliness of heart. 
It explains Adam's joy when God formed Eve from his rib and brought her to Adam. We read the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And that's what the word woman means. He was saying, "Mm mm-hmm, now we're talking. (laughs) Now we're talking. Adam was already relating to Eve as distinct from the animal creation. She's like him, flesh and blood, suited to be a lover, a companion, a possessor of intelligence and reasoning and passion and knowledge and wisdom, which the animal sadly lacked in regard to Adam. In my ministry, I've talked with a number, many, single adults whose ambition is to become married and have their own wife, have their own husband, have their own family. Do you know that much of the Old Testament histories deal with seeking out a partner for life through marriage? In those days, marriage was arranged by the family head, the father, the patriarch. In our day, there's a revival of some of this. The Old uh, Old Testament patriarchal practices are in vogue. It's believed and practiced by some that the father in a Christian home should choose the future wife or husband for his children. But you know, that's not always a guaranteed road to happiness. Laban chose Leah for Jacob when Jacob loved Rachel. And thought he was marrying her, even though Laban eventually gave Rachel, as well as Jacob, that patriarchal family could hardly be called a beacon of harmony and happiness. There's no system given in the new covenant, which is our rule of faith, other than the proviso that we read earlier from Paul, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Translation, don't marry an unbeliever. Marry someone in the faith. That's the first point of Christian marriage 101. You want a happy marriage? Marry someone of like faith. It should also be noted that Paul deals extensively with the single state in his teachings. He reads in 1 Corinthians 7, Now to the unmarried. See, you can tell he's changing, he's transitioning here. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say. It's good for them to stay unmarried as I am, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8 and 9. Now, some have read this, and they have concluded that the celibate life is the preferred Christian life. Wrong, but that's what people read. Catholic circles, priests do not marry, generally. The nuns do not marry, generally. They live life in a monastic environment, mono, Greek word for alone. But here meaning the absence of the opposite sex in marriage. 
Now, all scripture, however, needs to be interpreted within context, else you can make the Bible say just about anything you want to say. So what is the context here where Paul advocates remaining single? Well, let's note a couple of texts. We're in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 26 and following. He starts out, because of the present crisis. Hmm. There's trouble on the horizon, according to what Paul's saying. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Then don't seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Then do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, uh, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, you don't have to guess, he tells us. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as though they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if they were not theirs to keep. And those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world and its present form is passing away. Wow, what a laundry list of foreboding references to living in the Roman world of Paul's day. What's he talking about? This world in its present form is passing away. And anything that goes on in the world. To what is he referring? Well, he's talking about life as a Christian under Emperor Nero's persecution, which is the time in which Paul lived. Nero had his half-brother Britannicus poisoned to death to squelch his rivalry in the throne. Just five years into his reign, he had his mother Agrippina bludgeoned to death after a rigged boat accident failed to drown her. So he sent thugs to bludgeon her to death. Next, he, married his aunt, he murdered his aunt. The man was so egotistical and proud of his poverty and music, but he was bloody. He was into mystic religions. He conversed with Simon Magnus, the sorcerer in Acts 8 of our Bible. Oh, and he hated Christians. In A.D. 64, a fire broke out in Rome that burned for nine days. And it destroyed Nero's palace. It also destroyed tenement housing of the poor. Nero then confiscated more than 300 adjoining acres so he could build himself a new palace, which he called the Golden House. Can you imagine what it was built out of? The rumor was that Nero had started the fire himself so he could confiscate the acreage for his new palace. Well, he needed a scapegoat, so what did he do? He blamed the Christians for starting the fire. And a severe persecution broke out against the Christian church. Paul himself was beheaded four years later by Nero in A.D. 68. 
And then Nero took his own life at the end of that same year, A.D. 68, because a conspiracy was afoot to oust him. Now, with all that in mind, brethren, it explains Paul's advocacy for this single life for his day. Nero's seeds of persecution were already sprouting growth. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 20, 32 says, I would like you to be free from concern. And he tells us, An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. And then he says the same thing in the next verse about a married woman. And then he concludes, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in individual devotion to the Lord. And he closes by conceding that, well, if you still want to marry, okay, you haven't sinned. That's because marriage is acceptable and it's honorable. 1 Corinthians 7, 26 and following. So you have to take into consideration his Advocate, advocation for the celibate life, you have to take it within context. Persecution was going on in the church. Nero was ahead of all of that. Christians were being slaughtered. Do you want your wife to be slaughtered? Do you want your husband to be taken off to prison? Do you want to be deprived of your children? Hmm. You should think about those things. And if you think about them, maybe, just maybe, you might conclude... We better put our marriage off. We, we need to postpone this a little bit because things aren't really good right now. And I think throughout Christian history that has been the case on a number of occasions. Now secondly, what are the biblical cures for the pain of loneliness? I've listed number one, cultivate associations and fellowship with the church family. I've already alluded to that, but now I'm making it a point. The New Testament authors speak often of the need for Christian fellowship. God never meant for you to become a hermit or a recluse now that your spouse is gone or now that you are yet single. I'm learning some of this myself. If you lack social skills, guess what? You can learn them through interaction with others. And there's no better environment to practice them than within the local church. What are some of the characteristics of fellowship? Well, number one, fellowship promotes unity and dispels division. Paul writes, God has called you into a fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and he is faithful. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9 and 10. And notice, he doesn't say necessarily identical in mind and thought, but united, you know. Compromise for the sake of peace and unity. He again says, secondly, that fellowship will evidence grace. 
He writes, James and Peter and John gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace that was given to me. Galatians 2 verse 9. Let's welcome other brothers in faith. So interaction and fellowship is for the people of grace. Those who, like yourself, have experienced the forgiveness of sins and the mercy of God and salvation. You have like ambitions and like desires and needs and solutions and methodology. All of that is very important in our interaction. You know, the world does this. You know what they do? I can tell you what they do. I mentioned the uh, senior apartment in Lapeer. Well, there's a number of the senior apartments in Lapeer. The casinos in northern Michigan go into those senior apartments and pay the seniors with 20 to $25 of casino chips. And then they send a bus there on a certain date, free ride, free casino chips to take them to the casinos to gamble their money. They do that for free. <laughs> yeah, right. Because they know that those seniors are going to gamble and lose more money than the $20 casino chips and the free bus ride. So I'm saying even the world has, and it's diabolical, I think, they have a way of trying to reach to the seniors and activate them and get them involved. We ought to do that as people of grace. Thirdly, fellowship permits us to share in Christ. Paul writes in Philippians 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. And I want to know the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings and to become like Him in His death. Or the writer of Hebrews says, Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. And in Jesus' words, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Matthew 25, verse 40. So develop associations and fellowship within the church family. When we go to the diner up the street, it's not because we're starving because we want to have fellowship, talk about the things of God or family or whatever. And then secondly, and this may shock some of you, learn to value being alone. Did you hear that? <laughs> I'm talking about fellowship, and now I'm talking about the value of being alone. Whoa. 
I have to confess that I do my best reflecting, I do my best contemplation when I am all alone. Yes, we need the interaction of Christian fellowship, but we also need time to be alone, can I say it, with our own thoughts. This was practiced by Jesus, our Lord. Let me read some of this. After he had dismissed them, the disciples, he went up to a mountainside by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Matthew 14, verse 23. After the feeding of the 5,000, what a wonderful and spectacular miracle. Jesus dismissed the crowd and he instructed his disciples, get in the boat and launch out onto the lake from Bethsaida. And we read, after leaving then, he went up on a mountainside to pray. And when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. Mark 5, verse 46. Again, the whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And it says very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Mark 1, verse 33 and following. Alone times. And there's a lot to be said for being alone at times. The world says, don't invade my space. But our solitude is not to pamper ourselves or to protect our privacy, but to recharge our spiritual batteries for service to others. As a pastor, I've had to learn that I cannot be always giving out if I have no time to take in. Same for you, I think. The pressures, the demands of life will rob you of time for you. Even good things like family, friends, work can become abusive if these things keep you from a personal relationship with God. Some here may not know what I'm talking about. Why? Because you don't have any personal relationship with God. He's distant. Your sin separates you from God. Though it's not far from any of you. That separation is spiritual, not spatial. He's right here with his people today. He's with us in our world every day. It isn't spatial. It's spiritual. But I have to warn you, there is an alone day. Can I say it that way? There is an alone day coming which will be terror, not joy. It'll be trauma, not jubilation. Hell is not a public park with a reunion for you and all your wicked friends. 
There are no beer parties in hell. There are no drug parties in hell. There are no sex orgies in hell. There's no dance parties in hell. You say, how do you know? Because God's prophets, God's word declares. Here's Amos as he writes. I found the scripture this, for this study, and I, I was shocked myself to read it. In reading through the Bible, you've got to read through the book of Amos eventually. But it's not exactly high on our priority list, is it? But listen to what he says. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Now, what's the day of the Lord? That's his coming. That's judgment day. And then he asks this question. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall to be bitten by a snake. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark, without a ray, without a ray of brightness. Amos 5, verse 18 and following. You ever try this? Do you know that nothing, nothing, nothing can be seen in pitch darkness? Say, oh yeah, you can, you can, no. Uh-uh. There's a cave in Pennsylvania called Penn's Cave. <laughs> Big deal. They put you in a boat, and they snake back through the caverns of this cave. Yeah, you know, they have lights in there so you can see, and they get you way in the back. And when they get you way in the back, when you're away from the mouth of the cave where sunlight was coming in, they shut off the light. And they ask you, put your hand in front of your eyes. What do you see? Wave your hand. See anything? You see nothing. Doesn't the scripture say it takes light to see light? Nothing can be seen in pitch blackness. Not your own hand in front of your eyes. Not your wicked friends in the space next to you. And what will you hear in hell? Can't see your friends and your buddies. What about hearing? What do you hear in hell? Well, you can hear in hell. Guess what? The Bible says there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you realize Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets are in the kingdom of God, but you yourself are thrown out. Ooh. Luke 13, verse 28. I read texts like this and I ask the question, why would anyone joke about going to hell? The reason they joke is they don't know anything about it. 
And so I'm telling you this morning, if you're an unbeliever, free from the wrath to come. Repent of your sins and confess Christ as Savior and live and live. You say, you Christians, you don't know how to live. And you're talking about booze and women and sex. That's what you think is living. Let me tell you, we live a full life. And when we die, we live a better life. We move to a better life. The abundant life that the scripture says is above what we could ask or think. You can't even think about it. However good you think heaven is. A sinless environment that is commensurate with our own heart and our love for Christ. May the Lord draw you to himself today. Our Father, thank you for your word. Your word tells it like it is. We don't like to hear some of these things. Uh, I don't like preaching some of these things. To any unbeliever here, it's a hard thing to tell them that hell is not a playground. It's not the Playboy Mansion. It's none of, the, none of these things. You, Hefner, today rise in pain and anguish in the depths of hell. And he's all alone. He's not there with his playboy bunnies, though they may share the darkness with him. Oh God, transform us. Grant us faith and repentance, which is the gift of God. Make us yours today. We don't want you. If we're an unbeliever, we can't stand the thought of holiness. But that's what we need. No one will see the Lord without holiness, the writer of Hebrews tells us. So, Lord, we need it. And though we can't stand it, we're asking you to change our heart and our minds and to draw us into that holy relationship with you. Thank you, dear Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity. That's the red hymnal number 590. <clears throat> 590. Let's stand. Yes, Five hundred ninety in the red hill.
good service him. We ought to be a praise to Christ in serving him. Well, tonight at 6 o'clock, we meet downstairs for our study in the uh, Gospel of John. We're looking at the final chapters of Jesus' teaching prior to his crucifixion. We're in chapter 16. So I hope you'll come out. Yeah, we bring finger foods, we eat, we fellowship around the tables, and then we fellowship around the book. And it's, it's interactive. I'll be teaching tonight. Um, but then we have time for questions and answers back and forth. And that's how we learn. That's how we grow. So I'll see you tonight at 6. We're dismissed. Thank you.